Hey, hey, I'm Jimmy Bullard, and this is me old muck of Venus. We're back together, son. How are you? Hey, Bully, great to be back working with you. What are we doing here, though? We're starting a football club in podcast form. The only thing we know, it's called FC Bullard. After that, it's all up for grabs. So, we haven't got any players, we haven't got a kit, we haven't got a club badge, we haven't got a stadium. Correct. FC Bullard. Welcome to the club. This is a crowd podcast. This episode is sponsored by Dave, the Viking Darking. To be more like Dave, go to patreon.com forward slash Joe Marla Show and become an official sponsor today. Who are you? What do you do? We currently don't have a clue, but give us 40 minutes of your time. And we'll get along just fine on the Joe Mahler Show. It's the Joe Mahler Show. Hello and welcome to our show. I'm Joe Mahler and this is Tom Fordyce. Tom, how are you? Joe, you like a festival, don't you? Yeah, I love it. When you go to a festival, what sort of stuff do you wear? Like, I'm worried this is like an angle teed up question. I will always be in shorts. Uh, I probably wear some some reasonable shoes, like walking, not walking boots, like trainers, snazzy ones, because obviously I'm a snazzy guy, pretty snazzy myself. Uh, vests, not the ones where it goes like the thin beaters, just the straight t-shirt that you've mm. just lopped off the the sleeveless. Arm. Yeah, and then I'll always have a couple of fancy dress outfits yeah, now we're um, as backups. Uh, the last one I went to camp festival, I dressed as Maui. Full wig, full works, walk around the place. Why? Why do you ask? Interesting you say that, Joe, because I'm going to a festival later this summer. Uh, it's my little brother's 40th birthday, and someone has had an idea for the fancy dress we could do. We were thinking about various options. A friend of mine suggested that we use this show as inspiration. There were four of us going to the festival. The idea was that each of us has to come as a guest from this show. Is this legit? Yeah. Oh my god! What uh, are they mates with normal names, or have they got the nickname? It's names? Conkers. Brilliant. My brother, Champagne Nick. He's not coming. He could come if he wants. He's not coming at uh, the moment. Big Al. Big Al's not coming. Again, if he wants to, it's my little brother, okay. my little brother's wife, me, and Conkers. Okay. Now, obviously. So, who do you want to go as? Well, I was wondering if we should put this to the listeners. The listeners can choose the four guests from the Joe Marler show that me, my brother, my brother's wife, Linda. And conquers have to go to the festival. You have to go as these, those. It can't be like, right, whatever they voted, we're actually going to go with whatever we want. What would be the worst option? Oh, shit. Sex worker. Why is that the worst option? It would be for me, I think. Also for my brother's wife, it might be hard (laughs) sell. Message in, have a little poll, and uh, we'll get you dressed up at at this next (laughs) festival. Where is the festival? It is in Herefordshire. It's either called Nozfest or Nozgate. I think it's Nozfest. Okay, on that list of people they could go as, they might want to go as today's guest. It might be tricky. Is is Conker's got hair? Yes. Oh. My brother hasn't. And his wife? Yes. Okay, well, you'll have to get a bald cap. Uh, Sean Atwood we've got on next. He's a drug trafficker. So maybe that could be an option for him. Great, thank you. You're welcome. Our guest today is Sean Atwood. Welcome, Sean. 
Thank you for having me on. I've been watching a lot of Peaky Blinders lately, Alfie. And when I first saw you, when we came in, you shook my hand. Tom Hardy on steroids. Look how pleased with yourself that you look, Joe Marlon. <laughs> Moving flashbacks, I think I'm in the room with Alfie right now. What what an absolute way to make the host, sorry, coast. Oh, coast. I see. <laughs> Got two Toms. Gone to two, two Toms. The co-host of the show. Feel at ease and comfortable. Bear in mind that you're up there with potentially one of the scariest, most dangerous most well-connected people in the underworld that we've had on the show. Is that I think a fair probably, assessment, Tom? I think that's probably fair. Sean, I will accept that compliment you've given me, <laughs> mainly because I'm a little bit scared to deny the compliment. Um, and plus, looking like Tom Hardy's not a bad thing, is it? Can you do an Alfie impression? Uh, Thomas fucking, Thomas fucking Shelby! <laughs> you don't fuck around! You fucking you, mate, you fucking... No, I do Bane quite well, though. You're merely... That was quite Yoda. You're... <laughs> you adopted the dark. I was born in the dark. Anyway, thank you. Anyway, talk to me. Why, why, why are you banned from America? So... In my plea bargain, I agreed to be banned from America. It was proposed by my lawyer and the prosecutor. You straight up went, I don't want to come back to America ever again. So in plea bargain negotiations, they start out high and you got, you got to get them low. So you got to offer some things. So offering that I would not come back could have saved me some years, you know. And why were you facing a plea bargain in the first place, Sean? Yes, that's a, sorry, I really fucked up the question. Don't worry, Jack. Well done, Tom. <laughs> the pro is here. So I went from being a business graduate nerd, stock market, stockbroker, day trader, dot-com bubble, made more money than I had common sense, and I thought I could parlay that into international ecstasy trafficking. Wasn't my brightest idea what? to break the law in Arizona. Were Sheriff Joe Arpaio, America's toughest sheriff, runs the local jail, and the neo-Nazi gang, the Aryan Brotherhood, decides who lives and dies if you're a white person. <laughs> but I had to learn all that the hard way. It's quite a start to a podcast, uh, 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 You even have to go to a rape class to get taught how not to get raped. I, 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 fuck me dead. <laughs> I had some notes on our guest today, but I did not anticipate that being the opening section. Tom, what did you want to be when you grew up? Like, what what was it that you thought? Oh, was Actually, it astronaut? What was it? When I was five, I told my mum I wanted to be a tramp because it looked like a nice outdoor lifestyle and no one bothered you. You're probably looking for a different sort of answer, Joe. No, I just wanted the honest truth, and you've given the honest truth, which is fine. So, if you wanted to be a tramp growing up, I wanted to be a combination of a cocktail shaker. Um, I wanted to be in the army at one point. Um, Sean, when did you decide, at what point in your life did you go, I want to be the next Pablo Escobar? When I watched... No, first off, there was, <laughs> there, was, <laughs> there was two moments. There was the moment of watching Wall Street, Gordon Gecko, greed is good. That became a mantra. Got to make a million by the time I'm 30, going to go America, conquer the stock market. That was when I was a teenager. Then, Wild Man came over, my best friend from childhood. I was going to idealistically get him a job as a wrestler against like Andrew the Giant and the British Bulldog and these people because he, he was a big lad. He had red dots in his head 
as a child tell him to hurt people and he grew so big in his school he picked up a teacher and just put him in the bin Ooh. so the teachers had him outside raking leaves with the uh, with the caretaker they were so scared of him so he grew massive he died uh just a year ago he was he was my co-host um r.i.p wild man but when he died he was six two and 29 and a half stone he, he was hell. like he was like a wall yeah he's like a wall <laughs> And he, he became a bodyguard in the mix of everything and opened the door into the, the gangster world for me during his first visit, which was about 96, 97, I think. So how does this all start, Sean? Like, it sounds like you always enjoy the party lifestyle and you had done in the UK. You go over to the States. How do you go from being a bloke who likes going clubbing and likes <laughs> doing the things in clubs that people do in clubs to being the person who makes the things that happens in clubs happen? All right, so two things happened before America that are pivotal. There's a quarry at the top of my town, Witness, on an area of land called Pex Hill. And there's a tree overlooking the quarry. So me and Wildman and Hammy, when we were like 13, 14, we'd go through the iron railings, get on this tree overlooking the quarry, and we called it the thinking tree. And that's where we set our goals. And Wildman would say, I'm going to prison. I spent the rest of my life in prison. I got the red dots telling me to hurt people. And then, and then Hammy would say, yeah, and, and, and Sean's with all this, you know, the stock market stuff. Cause I started following it at 14, trading at 16. You know, he's, he's going to do well. I was like, yeah, I'm going to fly. I'm going to make a million in America in the stock market and fly you guys over. And that's what I ended up doing. So while man goes off to prison, I go off to America. But prior to him going to prison, he was my rave partner in Manchester and Liverpool from the dome conspiracy in manchester liverpool it was the state scrapyard talk stuff quadrant part later on that became my religion because i had social anxiety as a teenager i almost got beat to death by some drunks with an iron bar not, 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 i got these veneers on my teeth and everything and um i wouldn't go out and dance i wouldn't talk to women i was very anxious but with wild man he, he was louder than anything and everyone would flock to him so he was my door into like a social life and then when i took ecstasy wouldn't stop dancing, wouldn't stop telling strangers my life story, hugging people all night long. And it had such an impact on me as a teenager because it gave me social confidence that I pledged when I made this million in America, I'm going to transfer this scene over to um, in Arizona from England, the Manchester rave scene. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to digest that as, the, <clears throat> as a statement. I'm out there raving with my mates, of which, you know, you spoke about Wild, was wild Man. And, wild Man. And who's the other one? His cousin is Hammy. And Hammy sat around yeah. a tree. I remember my three, me and my two mates growing up, we had a similar thing. We didn't have the tree or thingy, but we'd sit around. And one wanted to be a footballer. And we were like, yeah, you're going to be a footballer. And the other one wanted to be a rugby player. Matt, he wanted to be a rugby player. We are like, yeah, you'll be a rugby player. And I was the short, fat kid. And I was like, well, what am I doing then, lads? Oh, well, you'll probably end up working in McDonald's. I oh, shit you not. I was like, <laughs> there's my aspiration right there. And we were all going to live on a bus, a double-decker bus, nice. drive around in it. They were obviously going to buy it because the money I was earning at McDonald's wasn't going to get it for me. And I, as soon as you were talking about your three, I was trying to compare with my situation. The fucking world's apart. We wanted, to, I want to work in McDonald's. You want to go create the rave scene in Arizona and be a drug lord for the rest of your life. No, the drug lord thing hadn't come into play yet. Oh, I just right. wanted to throw raves and bring the scene over. So that was when I was like, you know, in my teens. So while man goes off to prison, and I'm, I'm working diligently in the stock market for five or six years. I entered America in 91. And then he came on his first visit. 96, 97, get him a place to stay by the Georgian Dragon British pub. 
thinking he was just going to have a drink with the expat, he's going to behave himself while I get him a job as a wrestler. Totally idealistic. <laughs> Next thing, me and my girlfriend go over there about three weeks into his stay, and a bunch of Mexicans answer the door. Like, where's Peter? Wild man is Peter. No, Peter here. Where's Peter? Where's Peter? They pull guns out on us, me and my bird are like, all right, we start backtracking, backpedaling over the road. Wild man just bounces over the road, all smiles. Like, you just nearly got a shot. Wow, what the hell's going on with your place? Oh, they're the local crack dealers. They like to move around a lot. So I've let them stay there. They're giving me free crack. I'm staying in their place. And they're buzzing because I can do a $100 crack rock in one breath. It goes like this, la. Sizzle, 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 sizzle. Ding, 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 ding. And it calms down my red dots. And the one at the back is a Colombian. He's running the operation. He wants to invest in the stock market. How are you responding to that, Joe? No, I need you to respond to that with words because I'm fucking lost here. Well, that's just the beginning. It ends up with a corpse on his doorstep. And this incident that happens doesn't put you off from what happens next. So drugs, my drug-taking career had accelerated into crystal meth around this point. And my aggression made me the highest producing stockbroker in the office. So my ego is going through considerable expansion. So you're actually a legit stockbroker. Yeah. And that's all going smoothly. It, it went from Wolf of Wall Street style penny stock operation to a legit brokerage in the beginning it was like this mafia don was running the office he'd have these power sales meetings in the morning with a board on the wall it'd bring in these heavy hitting brokers i think they were on coke and they were just screaming at us like drill sergeants you are only as big as your numbers are on this board for the month if you're calling your wives if you're calling your girlfriends other brokers are calling your clients smiling brokers make the most money have mirrors on your desks pacing brokers make the most money we had to have 24 foot (laughs) curly cords attached to our phones and mirrors on the walls of our quads so we could smile jump up and pace back and forth pace back and forth that was in the beginning but we learned that was a penny stock outfit and we copied all the accounts one night we photocopied them and, and uh, moved on moved up the, up the ladder how do you get into dealing drugs rather than taking them i'm working the stock market and calls me peter's house is headline news there's yellow tape all around it someone's dead it might be him you need to get your ass up there so I fly up there in my sports car, yellow tape, news crews, I've got drugs in the car, ship myself, go back to work and wait it out. Go back in the evening and um, there's blood on the doorstep, the corpse has been removed, he's got a homicide detective, sat with him, the, the homicide detective asked me, you know, how did I pay for this, what's he doing here, blah, blah, blah. And um, once the homicide detective had gone, I said, Peter, what, you know, what, what's happened? So a couple came to buy drugs from the, the Mexicans. The Mexicans like to rotate properties, so they were no longer there. They were back over the road. So the woman went to buy crack from the Mexicans, and the man stayed with Wildman. The man had a gun. Wildman's never seen a gun before. He says to the man, I'm from England. We don't have guns. How does that work? So the man pulls his gun out, thinks he's got the safety on, pulls the trigger says this is how they work, pulls the trigger and shoots himself in the head and falls on the step, dead, just like that. So they'd done the gunpowder test on Wildman. It wasn't him. It was ruled a shooting accident, I think. Wildman's now traumatised by seeing this right in front of him, so he's got to move in a hurry. So one of the females from the drug community says, look, 
my other female friend is behind on the rent on the west side. It's her and her boyfriend and me. Do you want to move in with us? So there's three of them, two females and this big steroid head, Chippendale blonde, curly hair, bouncer from a nightclub on Van Buren in the south side, thinks he's a real tough guy. I'm thinking, is this a good combination with Wildman? Well, he's not got nowhere else to go anyway. So I signed off on the, the check, give it the landlady. Next day, landlady says, Peter's got to move out. Oh, that was fast. What, what, <laughs> what's, what's he done now? He's beat his roommate up. I said, well, how do you know he's beat his roommate up? The roommate was seen fleeing for his life through the apartment complex by many of the residents with plasterboard powder all over his head and face. And there are multiple human head-sized holes in the walls. I'd say there's something that's happened there. Would you? How would you feel, Joe, if um, your new roommate introduced himself as Wild Man? Well, I'd actually be quite excited to begin with, actually, because I'm like, well, he's not going to be boring as fuck, is he? And then I presume, because it doesn't take him that long, after a day, there might be a few concerns. Um, I might start wearing protective gear. Won't have any guns, though, you know, and if I do, I'm going to take a lot more care of them. So, 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 one of the females says, look, I've got another female friend in Tempe, Arizona, uh, her boyfriend's behind on the rent. He was a little wussy, this guy we call Crybaby Joe. So I fixed her rent situation. And while I moved in, this was like a three-bedroom apartment in a complex of huge apartment buildings by the university, uh, Arizona State University, Party Central. So while I loved it here, and that one didn't end as abruptly as, as the others, but what happened was while I started to have 24-7 just parties, where anyone would 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 arrive, so you've got street walking, sex workers, gangsters, Mexican mafia, Italians, Russians, you name it. Because Wildman is just so loud, and tough guys just gravitate towards him. So it was through his apartment I met all of the people of the underworld, which laid the foundations for the ecstasy importation enterprise. You you seem to be doing so well in the stock market. <laughs> And the brokerage and doing that, yeah. What at what point did it flick in their head that was it pure greed that you decided, fuck actually, I wanna make another million, I wanna make two million, as well as I wanna be known as something else. I want I want this sort of notoriety rather than just being this sort of white coloured stockbroker. It's not the money at this point, it's the attention. Right. And female attention. You're the man. You're throwing the party. Everyone's coming to you for the E. You've got the striptease dancers are coming over. And it's just got more and more out of control into drug-fueled insanity. What was the, I was going to say the low point, but what was the high point of that? those high times for you? Okay, so the high point then um, was a few years later, the peak of the enterprise. I'm living in a million-dollar house on the side of a mountain got me on swimming pool jacuzzi it's in a gated guarded community where you can't even get up the street without a guard stopping you at the barrier and i'm married to a woman who was a educated woman she had a degree but she was doing lesbian internet porn when i met her and i've got we've just got an apartment now rented that my right hand man cody bates another guy who's dead most of my male co-defendants are dead now cody had just rented apartment just for the cash and he'd, he would do the rounds wouldn't call me he'd come to the house tell me what you know, was going on with the various heads of the factions, whether they needed pills, whether they were behind on payments. If there was an issue, Wildman and G-Dog would go and take care of it. If everything was running smoothly, we'd just kick back, 
keep partying and and and, and making them it. But it, but it was shallow. I've got. A, I, know I work in drugs education now. I've got. A, I've got to give a disclaimer. I was at a school in London this morning. I'm not trying to glamorize this. I'm realizing now. You said what was the high? I, I'm talking about the peak of the glitz and the glamour as as the high because there's a. A story arc, isn't there here? Like you see in Blow, like you see in many of these movies. Starts out with the glitz, the glamour, you're the man. Then the heat comes in, the feds, and um, you start to associate with various mafias. In my case, it was the New Mexican Mafia. And things get really dangerous, and then it all goes to shit, and you pay the price. Like, my mum had a nervous breakdown. I was facing 200 years. Um, my family would fly 5,000 miles to come and visit me in a desert prison and all the shit you don't think about when you're running around spaced out. I feel like, Joe, we need almost to set aside any moral questions at this point. We will come back to them and dive into the practicalities of how this world works. So, Sean, let's say you were selling, or one of the people who were working for you, because I'm sure you didn't get your hands dirty after a bit. <clears throat> let's say one of your underlings was selling an ecstasy pill for 20 quid. Who gets what money out of that 20 quid? All right, so it started out with me getting them off a local guy called Acid Joey. He was also dead now. He was, I was very close to Acid Joey. He could get 50 to 100 from the locals. Then I went out to L.A. with Wildman, Seth, Acid Joey to hook up with an L.A. supplier for the first time. So two carloads of us go out there, and we're waiting outside this guy's house. Have you ever seen that movie, Point Break, with the surfer gangsters? Yeah. He's with, he, he's, he keeps us waiting for ages, right? And one man's like, I'm just going to kick his fucking door in and take his shit. No one keeps me waiting for this fucking long. And I'm like, Peter, calm down. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I was just getting lost in the moment there. And you, yeah, I'm going fucking, and then you turn around and go, Peter, would you just calm down? <laughs> Bad business, Peter. If we kick his door in, who are we going to get the pills sorry. from? Come on, guys, just keep him calm. Yeah. And then Saul, this guy, shows up, the dealer, with all these surfer gangster guys straight out of point break i've never seen these people like that before in my life so i go in the house on my own i say to them acid joey wild man look if i'm not on 20 minutes then kick his fucking door in so i go in with all this money thinking i might get ripped off here the cops might pull me on the way out i'm shitting myself but i go in anyway and so um i say can i try one first he goes yeah i'll get you a drink so i don't need a drink i'm just gonna chew it so i get it he's looking at me weird like i'm chewing this pill because i could tell what a good pill tastes like an XC pill should be 100 milligrams of mdma and clay 100 125 milligrams of mdma and clay you get a nice press from holland like a beige or a white press none of that college shit so it was one of those holland presses throw it in chew it good pill what's it taste like um is it it's like got a, a very distinct chemically... it's got a very distinct chemical taste right, that, yeah. that just hits the spot it's not one of those you just pop in i could eat loads of these <laughs> no no, these no. Are nice. most people would probably be repulsed right yeah yeah then he comes out with like the biggest bag of pills I've ever seen. I think they were Mitsubishi's, thousand Mitsubishi's. And Mitsubishi, just to explain to people, were a, a pill stamped with a Mitsubishi car logo. Oh, you've done them. He's done his research. <laughs> He's done his research. <laughs> like we mentioned earlier, Tom, there's going to be several moments where I'm like, hang on a minute, have I just heard what I think I've heard? What, what, where do I go with that? Where the fuck do Those I go Those pills went in a weekend. That was the business experiment. I had to decide then whether to quit the life as a stockbroker and go full-time into the party scene, and that's what I did. But there was some hurry moments as I got introduced to the New Mexico Mafia that occurred around this time. Well, just to go back to that earlier point, 
the breakdown of the percentages. All right, so let, let's go to the the peak of it then, when I've got mules bringing up, you know, tens of thousands of pills at a time in. I think the largest shipment we did was 40,000, yeah, in computer towers, and he brought them in through Mexico. So what happens at that point is I've got 10 to 20 factions of my enterprise. I've got about 200 people working for me at the peak of it. The heads of the factions might get 5,000 pills on credit, at let's say 10 and then he gives them a runner at 15 20 whatever and runners are out in a club selling for 25 30 dollars now if you look at what my costs are the cost of the pill the cost of the flights paying the smuggler legal expenses and any costs i've got to incur from pills getting jacked so i'd average that about three dollars a pill so if i'm bringing forty thousand in at three giving them to my Dealers at 10, distributors at 10, I'm making seven, aren't I, on 40,000, which is what, 280,000, is it? 200 something thousand? Fuck knows, but it sounds yeah. like a decent markup. <laughs> <laughs> I can see why you were like, yeah, this is actually going really well. well let's fucking go more. Let's do some more. <sighs> when you t- well, you said mule, Mules, you clearly smugglers. don't mean smugglers. You, so you mean people? Yeah. Didn't mean the people. animal. No, 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 because that would be too slow. You know, <laughs> the police are definitely fucking catching them. Um, details around muling. How the fuck are you getting that across the borders or airports or right. boats or whatever? How is that? Is everything fucking shoved up their ass? Are they? Are too they? Many. Too many. Are you cutting? <laughs> are you cutting bodies open? Are you what? How are so, you? So, how are you getting so, this shit all through? Right, so we go. We go from fifty to hundred local. Thousands of five thousand out of LA, tens of thousands out of Holland. In in the beginning, when we're when we're uh, um, bringing them from Holland, we're experimenting. We've got people strapping them to the bodies, just a thousand, two thousand. We've got people uh, sending them back in stock, hollowed out stock market reports, glued in through FedEx. That was another method. And then in the end, we lost a few people at airports uh, around the world. One we got, one we got lost. Um, okay, this is this is where we introduce Wild Woman. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> wild man and then wild woman, yep. The wild ones, collectively. Ah, good. Wild woman took a whole family out in my hometown of Witness with a bar stool, put them all in hospital. Hence, she did not get on with them, no? I think one they were picking on one of her mates or one of her family members, so she just picked up a bar stool and dealt with it. So she became known as the wild woman of Witness. And wild man, around the time he was picking up school teachers and putting them in bins, was christened by his uncle Bob, wild man of Witness. So they were destined to meet and become the wild ones. There's a film in this. <laughs> There's definitely a film in this. Yeah. So Wild Woman is bringing a load of pills to Sky Harbor Airport, Phoenix, Arizona, in vitamin jars, in her luggage. She gets stopped. They take her in a back room. They empty her luggage and put the vitamin jars on a table and say to Wild Woman, what are they? And she says vitamins and weight loss pills and stuff like that. And they say, cool. And they pick them up and put them back in the luggage and tell us to have a nice day. So we thought, right, we've got to consult someone about our smuggling techniques. So there was a lawyer I knew, and the lawyer said, bring them in through Mexico. <laughs> oh, just, how shit were these fucking border police? They've gone, what are they, Vit D? Please crack on, do, what, yeah. do whatever you want with that. So then our operation, I send the wild ones down to Mexico to pave the way, because you've got to be all right with the Mexicans. Mexico is divided into plazas, and the cartels run, various cartels run every plaza. So you've got to pay to play. If you're smuggling through the plaza, you've got to 
pay off everybody locally, otherwise you will be taken somewhere and tortured. So at the peak of it, then we're bringing them in through Mexico. But while I'm still a stockbroker, I got a call from Fish. Fish was in an apartment in the same complex that Wildman was at, where he he'd settled down for a bit. And Fish said, got a situation, will you come over with Wildman and Seth right away? Seth was another massive guy as well. Um, Seth's dead too. And I said, all right, I'll go and see if I can get Wildman. I'm phoning Wildman, phoning Wildman, trying to figure out where he is. And Wildman is collecting crack debts for the Colombian in central Phoenix. I can't get him. Don't know where he is. So I go over to Fishy's myself. This is a 30-minute drive. Get to Fishy's. Fish answers the door, and his girlfriend is, like, crying. I'm like, what's the matter? What's the matter? And they're just both staring at me. And then I hear... It was loads of flies. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I said, what the fuck was that to them? They're speechless. They say, you just better go look. So I walk into this room, and there's a naked, hog-tied man on the carpet, and there's a New Mexican mafia guy I've already been introduced to, an old, older guy with slick back silver hair, and he's giving instructions in Spanish to his crew, and they've got cattle prods. And when he gives the order, they're cattle prodding this guy. And he, he goes like this, like a rocking horse. And he's gagged. And piss is shooting out of his dick as they're electrocuting him. So that's what I walked into. And this is heavy. So now I'm thinking, shit, how do you behave in a situation like this? If they think I'm a liability, what's good, what are they going to fucking do to me if they're doing this? You're going to be on all fours yeah, in five yeah. minutes, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So... I say, I say to Fish, what's happened here? Fish said, this guy on the floor, who was one of my customers, he'd come and bought some drugs, waited until I left, and came back and robbed me. And he robbed their stuff, as in the New Mexico Mafia. He robbed your stuff. I called you. I called them. And they got here first. So did you, uh, presumably you had your cattle prods um, in the boot, ready to, ready to, oh, that's what I was going to do first, my, lads. My Vicks inhaler and my glow sticks. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the head of the operation with the silver, he's looking at me with a like, welcome to the family smile. And I'm like, yeah, I couldn't find wild man. I got to get back to work and got the fuck out of there. But all the way back to work, it was haunting me what was going to happen to that guy, but I, I did learn what happened to the guy. So they called his roommates and they said, um, we caught him doing this. We've got him in here, 10 grand. You guys need to hustle up 10 grand real quick or he's going to be taken out to the desert. And they did hustle up 10 grand real quick. And that was that. This episode is sponsored by the following magnificent people. Who cares wins? It's Sean Carey. You can call him Al twice. It's Al Allen. Dickie Johnson, John Dickinson. Stu Watson all, it's Neil Stewart. The mayor of where, it's Ken Mayer. Get off the fence, Tommy Pickett. How does it feel? Emily O'Neill, Matthias Alcane, Just James, Jimmy Dean, the bounty hunter, Alistair Bounty, the wily old fox, Dave Wiley, Tristan Hall, Ollie Soundy, and the Prince of Welsh, it's William Welsh. To be more like all of them, go to patreon.com forward slash Joe Marler Show, become an official sponsor, and grow the show today. Who's Sammy the Bull Gravano? Have I said that right? 
Who, right. who was he? So have you heard of John Gotti, the Gambino crime family? One I've of heard of the Gambino. Right, so the yeah. Gambino crime family, the, the boss was Paul Castellano, and there was a coup, and the coup was led by John Gotti and Sammy the Bull. So John Gotti became the boss, and Sammy the Bull became the underboss. They whacked him at Spark Steakhouse in New York. It was major, major thing. So they called John Gotti the Teflon Don, because nothing ever stuck. He had a brilliant lawyer. He would rig the juries, and he was always getting out of trouble. And he was a very charismatic person, but because he was so charismatic, many in the mafia believed that it attracted the heat into the enterprise. So when all the uh, shit went down, Sammy the Bull ended up cooperating against Gotti. He'd served some years. He refused to go into witness protection. He said, I'm not getting a fake-ass beard and living on a farm in Montana. If they're going to come for me, I've got some surprises for them. Formidable character. And he set up... According to the prosecutor, he set up an ecstasy ring out of Tempe, Arizona. But if you look at it closely, and Sammy the Bull is a YouTuber now, fascinating. And it's come out that Sammy the Bull, he's saying that he wasn't running the ecstasy ring. It was his son. But Sammy the Bull was convicted of running it. He went to prison for it, served his time. So he was your competitor, was he? Here's how we learned about those guys. So we had all the locals locked down and they started calling me the Bank of England. So then they were coming to me to invest in their raves. So if you've got the locals locked down, it's, it's great because anyone trying to get into that from out of state or anything, all the information flows up to the top and they, they spot anything for you. So it was gravy for a few years, but then all of a sudden, all the reports started coming in, this new kind of ecstasy dealer stepping on our toes. Steroid head jock guys in a leopard print shirt, stood out a mile, you know, versus the grungy, raver-looking people. So I'm thinking, who the hell are these people stepping on my toes? Because they were proliferating everywhere, selling these coloured pills. And um, my bisexual wife at the time, she had a girlfriend who, who had started to date one of these guys. I mean, that as a sentence in itself is fantastic. <laughs> my bisexual wife's girlfriend had a guy that she... He was dead. Right, fuck, carry on. So that's how the original meeting came out, came about with these guys, was through the women. So she says, look, these guys want to meet you. They want to talk business. And I said, yeah, look it up. I'm curious. So I, I just took one of my bouncers with me, Rosetti. Uh, he was strapped. And I said to Rosetti, you know, if they kidnap me, just open up on the motherfuckers. So we go up to this bar in Tucson, uh, Tucson Arizona, Heart Five, it's called. Me and my wife walk in to get some confidence up for this meeting. I've drunk ghb i've done crystal meth but uh, forgive me i'm a virgin when it comes to this what's ghb gamma hydroxide butamate so you're on that i've got social yeah. anxiety i'm just this business nerd from graduate from england social anxiety so i'm thinking these guys they've heard of me english sean the bank of england i've got to put on a front here so crystal meth and ghb is going to make me a bit wild and crazy there was two of them. There was a shorter one called the Spaniard, and then there was a six and a half foot one with, with spiky blonde hair, like Dolph Lundgren bloody size guy. And the Spaniard was nice, and the other one was aggressive. <laughs> so they take me through to the VIP room, and the big one yells, everyone in the VIP room, get the fuck out of here now. So the Spaniard was polite, and he's like, you know, Sean, we know, you, you know you're doing good business. You've got the locals with you. Why don't you start? moving some of our product and i say i'm getting quality pills from holland because i was cognizant with that many pills if someone takes some crap they could die the heat would be on so we always knew we had a good reputation for quality pills so i said to them i've got a good reputation don't want any of your colored pills big guy jumps up 
Who the fuck are you disrespecting our pills? One call to Sammy the Bull and we can have you taken out to the desert. Now I'll figure, is he just mouthing that off or is this real? So um, before the meeting ended, I said to them, look, there's enough uh, demand for ecstasy in Arizona for us to coexist. It's not each other we need to worry about. It's the cops. Since you guys have been running around the raves and the clubs, mouthing off that you're the biggest ecstasy barons in the history of the world, the heat has come on, the feds are going around in cars filming license plates, there's undercover cops everywhere. So anyway, I left that meeting on an uneasy note, and what happened was another click from the Gravano Enterprise lured my top XC salesperson to a nightclub in Scottsdale under the false pretext of doing a deal, smashed his teeth out, took all his pills, took all his money and everything. So yeah, that was that was that came from their side. So that was Sammy the Bull. That's who Sammy the Bull is, yeah. Who are the devil dogs? The devil dogs were the enforcers for the Gravanos. I think they were like skinhead, don't know if they were neo-Nazi guys who would beat people up and, and bark and yelp like dogs as they as they smash people. Nice. <laughs> Don't sound like I'll be going for a pint with them. Um, I'm thinking, as I'm listening to Sean's stories, because Sean, you're telling these stories with a smile on your face a lot of the time. And if you don't mind me saying there, you still have quite a manic quality, don't you? I think it's Tom Hardy on steroids. He's giving me the giggles. <laughs> oh, it's my fault. It's my fault, I see. Yeah, yeah, fine. But there's so many serious and, quite frankly, horrific things that you're telling us. I think I've got a nervous reaction of smiling as well because people have analysed that on some of my videos. I do smile sometimes at things and I think, for me, it's like a trauma response, PTSD from things that I've been through. I am generally a happy-go-lucky person, so I think that's a mode I switch into, perhaps, when... Yeah. Was there any thought, as you saw things like the cattle prods, or, I suppose, too, as you saw stuff happening to either individuals who you were supplying to or communities, was there any point where your own personal moral compass started twitching? So I'm on crystal meth again at this phase of my life. and My moral compass is not twitching. I'm thinking that he robbed them and had it coming. He's a bad guy. He was trying to rip us all off. He had it coming. And there's like a code, isn't there, in the gangster community. I'm not trying to justify what happened because all violence is heinous. But there's a code, isn't there, in the gangster community. You know, he ripped those gangsters off. He's brought that upon himself. He thought he was so smart he could tax them. But he went up against the wrong people. So I didn't have any sympathy for him. But I did have sympathy for people in other situations. And I think that um, don't get gangsterized, kids, because it'll end up yeah you'll lose years of your life you'll pay a huge price your mum will be the one who melts down and everything else yeah did you have those sort of realizations at any point whilst you were still working and carrying out all of this shit or was it until you got caught that you then started on this massive come down that you're like fuck this is a massive reality check because all, all of what you've mm. just described the stories the people that you've come across are incredible stories and really somewhat exciting and film-like that you're like, well, fucking hell, I'm just living, this is fucking carnage. We were joke. We're, this we're was amazing. We're fucking... with characters out of Pulp Fiction with all this shit. Exactly. Yeah. But then when it comes on that massive come down, you're like, fuck, actually, I'm looking at spending the rest of my life in jail. And what about my old dear or my old family that I actually left back in England or 
the families that are now fucked up from all my comings and goings? Was it during that period or was it when no, you, you got arrested? You're spot on because I thought I was keeping the party going. I was misguided. Once I got in the jail and I sobered up and I looked around, so 90% approximately of the prisoners were injecting drugs, but approximately two-thirds of them had hepatitis C, yellow jaundice skin, teeth rotting out. Thought I was a wild and crazy party person. These guys were 10 times more hardcore than me. It was, it was a very humbling, uh, you know, experience for me. I had to keep my mouth shut and just keep myself to myself. But observing what was going on around me, I realised I put people on that road of drug use and this is the horror of what it leads to. In all of this... Who was your protect? Like who? Who were helping you survive in this world? Because it can't have just been you, Wild Man, and fucking Acid Pete or G Dog, whose brothers were New Mexican Mafia. So you had the New Mexican Mafia on your side. Yeah, do you want me to explain how that came about? You, you, you're gonna have to. Yeah, we're going back to Wild Man's first visit. We're at that apartment, Rancho Marietta. We're at an apartment party, and everyone's just chilling out. I'm talking to G Dog. G Dog is a ruggedly handsome. Chicano, which is a Mexican-American. He's got all the prison tattoos on. He's got the chains and everything, and I'm talking to him. And because he's supplying the coke and the weed, and I'm supplying the ecstasy, you know, we're the dealer, so we're having a conversation about that and trading things and stuff. Cop walks in. I can smell weed from outside. Nobody move. Goes to get his radio like he's going to call it in. G-Dog, without hesitation, just whips out a gun, points it at the cop's face, says the only one who's not leaving is you motherfucker everybody run so we all run off into the night now i mentioned earlier this complex is a complex of multiple buildings and by now we've got multiple apartments working for us so we run over to fishes and we're like what should we do so we flush our shit obviously you know the cops are going to come up we've never seen anything this ever before we, we are crapping ourselves and we're having this discussion next thing bam 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 on the french window we forget the cops pull the window back Psh, g-dog let me in so we let him in and then he completely schools us he says don't answer the door they can't get a warrant that fast and just turn the tv off turn the lights off nobody make a sound so we decide not to flush our pills we listened to him we didn't make a sound they knocked they knocked next door they went on their way there was a lot of heat in that area for hours and then at the end of that i said to g-dog come to another one of my properties you're too hot in this area and you can cool off over there. So that's what I did. So at the end of it all, G-Dog said to me, thank you, Sean, for protecting us, me. Um, because you've done that, me and my brothers have got your back. I had no idea who they were. I had no idea what that meant. So about three months later, he says, my brother wants to meet you. There's a house with all these lowrider showcase cars on the street. His brother's a shorter guy, no hurt, looking up at me with a mean face. And he's kind of suspicious. But when he hears my English accent, he starts buzzing. He's like, damn, you talk funny. I guess you are from England. Come in and meet my homies. So I go into the living room and there's all these massive tattooed Mexican-American guys. Not smiling. They look like they want to eat me. Uh, all the prison tattoos again, the chains. I'm looking around the room. They've got the biggest TV I've ever seen. And they've got a TV screen about the size of that computer screen there next to the big TV showing everybody coming and going on the road. So they can see if you know they're gonna get raided. But I look at the main TV and I do a double take. That's not an ornament. I've seen one of them before. Oh yeah, it was in a Rambo movie. Rocket propel grenade launcher on top of the TV. Yes, you do. So then one L- was, a real one. Real one. Not like a little toy one. No, no, real ones. Okay, just just clarifying, yep. <laughs> then the big one of the biggest ones just swings a spoonful of coke in my face. Snort that. 
a look at G-Dog. Yeah, snort it. And you'll learn later that that was one of the hit men as well that, that, that swung that. So I passed the coat test. And then the brother takes me in the back and we start, I start supplying them ecstasy from there and I'm getting like hydroponic weed from them and, and other things. But they've got my back from there on out, which lasted a couple of years till they all got raided. So when does it all come crashing down? So Wildman's fourth visit now, right? No, no, he's in deportation prison after his first third visit, right? Yeah. Skinner, my top ecstasy salesperson whose teeth got knocked out, I used to hang out with him loads. But when Wildman come over, I had to share my time between the two of them. Skinner starts getting jealous. It's always the people you're working with who bring the enterprise down. Well, ultimately, I've got to take responsibility for that. I, I broke the law. It's my responsibility for what happened. But the inner dynamics are Skinner got so jealous, he plotted to have Wild Woman and her pills jacked by doing a problem-reaction-solution firebomb attack. What? So, Wild Woman... <laughs> Sorry, that sounds like too much of a uh, like an actual legit exercise that the police are doing. A, pro- a problem-reaction... From David Icke. What the fuck? Go on, carry when on. you create a problem, then you come in with the solution. Okay. Yeah, all right. So, Wild Woman is, is a, near the window of her flat, it's got all these pills in it that she's distributing for me. Firebomb comes through the window, almost setting her on fire. She's no idea what's happened. But then this gangster crew show up and tell Wild Woman, we're with Skinner, grab all of your pills, grab all your stuff, get in the car, come with us, we'll take you to safety. They underestimated Wild Woman. She's a scouser. Well, I was like, I don't know you fucking guys from fucking Adam. Do I look like chopped fucking liver? Do you think I'm going to get in a fucking car with you guys? <laughs> they, they fucked off. They couldn't deal with her. Anyway, we found out that Skinner was behind the whole thing. So Wildman then said, you need to get me out of the deportation prison. So we got a lawyer to expedite that. He got sent back to the UK. I sent a team of people smuggling him back in. I can't remember if it was Canada or Mexico, one or the other. He comes back in. Right away, he's just on crack and meth every single day. All he can focus on, he wants to murder Skinner. And then Skinner gets so scared, he goes to the cops. So then May 16th, 2002, SWAT team came. And that was it. That was it. Right, I think we need to have a break before we then find out what happened in, was it Arizona prison? What was the... Yep, Arizona, yeah. Oh, God. Shrink the Box is back for a brand new season. This is the podcast where we put our favourite fictional TV characters into therapy. Join me, Ben Bailey-Smith, and our brand new psychotherapist, Namone Metaxas. Hi, Ben. Yes, this season we're going to be putting the likes of Tommy from Peaky Blinders, Cersei from Game of Thrones on the couch to learn why their behaviour creates so much drama. So make sure you press the follow button to get new episodes as soon as they land on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Shrink the Box is a Sony Music Entertainment original podcast. So we are now with you, Sean, on your first day in what by any standards is a brutal prison. What was that first day like? When you arrive, you go into a subterranean sequence of cells called the horseshoe because it's a horseshoe formation where there's no windows or anything. The entrance is like where the cops are dropping all the new arrestees off. So you've got like drunks, homeless, addicts, people who have been in fights, people who are high quite a feisty bunch of men about to go into the horseshoe our van pulls up and as the group the first group of co-defendants is 13 
half men, half women. Women get off first. As the women get off, the men waiting to go in the horseshoe all turn around and start yelling things like, get your tits out, and saying all these obscene things to the women. Wild woman gets off. And I'm watching Wild Man on the bus watch Wild Woman get off and these people start talking shit to Wild Woman. Mm-mm, don't want to do that. Eyebrow goes up. I'm like, oh, Red shit. Red dots. I'm like, oh, shit. And at this point, Wild Man's got like this Viking beard as well. So the redneck cop is yelling at everyone to get off the van fast. You know, you got to get to the top of the step, get down, get down, get down, get down. Wild Man gets to the top step and refuses to get down. The cop's yelling at him raises his viking's beard like this and his demonic eyes rotates his head at all the all the men and goes who the fuck do you lot think you are disrespecting our women in a couple of minutes we're all gonna be behind those walls in those cells together and i'll have any fucking one of you and then for special effect he, he cocks his head back even more and he's got a way of laughing that literally shakes a fucking room and he just goes <laughs> and they all shut the fuck up <laughs> they didn't want to take the chances man he's scaring me now <laughs> oh, <it's good. laughs> so you've so before you've got in in the actual prison you've been sentenced to what how long did they stay? no i thought my case was 26 months what i'm in the notorious maricopa county jail for 26 months still fighting your case yeah because i won't cooperate and they pull out every dirty trick in the book on us. I was the last man standing. So then, after that twenty-six months, what are they said? How do, are you? Are you? Did you get off? What happened after twenty-six months? Then you go to the prison system. So jail is remand, then the prison. Right. So you did your twenty-six months campaigning yeah. against it, refuting everything, just trying to survive with the survive. New, with the gangs. The and then what, what did they say to you after the twenty-six months? After twenty-six months, I signed a plea bargain for nine and a half years, of which I had to serve six. And you had been looking at what? 200 200 that sounds like yeah. a decent plea bargain i'd take that yeah we got the lawyer 200 years back. reduced to nine getting sentenced to nine and a half was one of the happiest days of my life so you, you served six and a half years in, uh, just under six at, at that point where you've initially been told you're facing 200 years of prison behind bars is that the moment where it all comes crashing down yeah and you go fuck I had a great time, but really thinking about it, what the fuck was I playing at? I planned to kill myself after a guard did as go as you walk because I thought I was never going to get out. So bear in mind, we've got dead rats in the food. We've got cockroaches crawling over us at night times. It's the Sonoran Desert, almost 50 degrees, so I'm covered in itching skin infections and bed sores. I've got a pink eye infection. My eyelid's down here, pu- yellow pussy's coming out of my eye. My girlfriend, who was my lifeline, they stopped her from visiting me by charging her with one prescription pill found without a written prescription. And many, many more things had happened. And then they said 200 years. So I thought, right, I'm, I'm going to wait till the guard does a security walk and just slash my wrists. But before I was going to do it, I want to say goodbye to my family and friends. And what I mean by that, I was allowed seven photos. So I get the photos out of my mom, dad, girlfriend, sister. And I'm looking at the photos and I'm looking at the photo of my mom, actually. And I'm thinking my mom's going to get a call, you know, saying, um, your son's just, just slashed his wrist in a foreign prison. I couldn't bear the thought of putting my mum through that. That's what stopped me from doing it. Were you just awash with regret at that point? Did you look back at everything you'd done and wondered why you'd done it? I know why I did it, because I had to go inside myself. Um, I had therapy. I read over a thousand books in just under six years, a lot of philosophy, psychology, and I had to go deep inside myself to address my demons, 
people take drugs and, and, and alcohol uh, as well. They can abuse alcohol because they're not happy in their own skin. I was never happy in my own skin. I was nervous as a teenager. It was compounded by almost getting beat to death by the drunks. I had social anxiety. And I think the therapist said to overcome a phobia, you've got to confront it head on. So basically an invisible hand had picked me up, put me around people that I wouldn't have chose to be around for six years sober, some of whom were maniacs. And I confronted my social anxiety by being in that situation for six years. So when I got out, the world seemed like a safe place versus incarceration. I didn't feel that anxiety like I used to feel. So I, didn't, I, I then became happy in my own skin, as, as well as reading you know, the psychology and the philosophy and the yoga and the meditation, all which, and the therapy all helped me lay down a framework not to go back to that behavior. A lot of what you've spoken about, Sean, is so far apart from where my life has ever been or will ever be all these wild stories, but then when it comes down to it all and at the end of it, and the silence is go, the harsh reality of it all, is that that's not what it's about. That's not the fucking life that you should be leading or looking to lead. And the troubles that you've had and tried dealing with using all that fucking shit actually could have been addressed in a different way, but it just, you went a very weird way about it. I think the combination of me and Wildman took it in a unique direction. And what what happened with Wildman? You, you mentioned at the dead. start. That They're all dead. We were all reinforcing each other's insane behavior. We attracted people who were really hardcore. And it's because of that that they're all dead. So Wildman, he was hospitalized with his heart and stuff. During one of the hospitalizations, they had all, we showed up to visit him. They had all of the things on him, heart monitors and stuff. And he said to me, have you got any E? So I gave him a pill thinking he was just, you know, when he gets out of hospital, he's going to want to celebrate. And he just popped it right there in the hospital. And all the monitors start going, beep, 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 beep. And we all ran out of the bloody hospital. So he lived fast and hard. And he, he was my co-host on my YouTube channel with my podcast. And people loved him. And they, they, um, he, he just, he would say anything to anybody. And he would purify people. If anyone was fronting it, he would see through them right away. And we called it purification. He would set them straight. And he was very funny how he did it. I think that's why he became so popular. And um, yeah, we lost him just, just over a year or so ago. Mul multiple organ failure it was. He, he, like I said, he got, he, he got even bigger. His, his ankle swelled up and he was leaking fluid through his legs and stuff. And he was rushed to hospital. And uh, I think the oxygen mask uh, slipped off him or something in the night. How does it feel to be last man standing? I've tried to restore my karma by talking to the kids, you know, telling them stories like my mum coming to visit me 5,000 miles and seeing her in the visitation room and my sister had a nervous breakdown and I, I shocked them with the horrors of what incarceration is really like versus what the glamorized uh, media representation is. As a yoga man, you know, hopefully I'm balancing out the harm that I caused because I can't change my past. Is that is that is that what you've replaced the craziness, the chasing around of all this adrenaline and notoriety with balance and your yoga, what, what other stuff are you doing? So my thing is, the therapist said, if you give something up, you've got to put stuff in its place. So fitness became a huge thing for me. 
So I got released 2007, moved down south 2009, joined the dojo, did karate for about seven or eight years, doing all these other fitness classes like body pump and, and body combat and, and then we do yoga. And, and now, you know, I do jogging, I do swimming, I do the blaze class. And some, some days I'll do uh, two classes in a day. So that's, that's my life now, yeah. I prefer a good night's sleep these days to being high all night and having threesomes with strippers. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've been on a roller coaster. Like, it's been up, down, twists and turns. Fuck me, dead. But I have loved every second of it. Well, thank you. Um, thank you so much for for coming on and sharing your story or sharing your fucking stories (laughs) well if like me you want to hear more of Sean he's got a true crime podcast out and just type in Sean Atwood in your podcast app and you'll find it and the jail stories are in hard time which I brought for you fellas thank you very much he's got a book out as well called Hard Time Sean, Sean thank you so much mate Joe, I got a very strong sense of energy there from Sean. Some of it good, some of it slightly more malignant. There was a lot of (gasps) um, arm folding and a little bit of uh, tensing up from you sat next to me. I was like, are you all right, mate? Because there was a bit of fear. Did you feel any? Not fear. No, no, because you're a big man. (laughs) No, I know what you mean. He was unbelievable. He was absolutely full of energy from the minute he walked in um bonkers through the roof for me it was uh captivating i couldn't take my eyes off him and i couldn't stop listening to all of his stories even the ones that i was like this has to be complete and utter bullshit surely um but i really really enjoyed talking to him he's he's a great bloke i loved it it was a remarkable story wasn't it ridiculous i'm just gonna plow on through all of his youtube videos now because i want to i want to know more and more nice well if you enjoyed that as much as joe and me and you want to support the show you can now subscribe on apple spotify and patreon for just a pound a week you can get bonus content ad free episodes and all joe to help karate show if you'd like another podcast to listen to, in the meantime, let me recommend to you our Modern History podcast, We Didn't Start the Fire. It's sort of based on the number one smash hit by Billy Joel, but it tells you all the reasons why the world today is as it is. Joe, I'm biased. I am on it, but it's decent. Okay, lovely. Who are we welcoming to our show next week? An architect. An architect. An architect. Why you saying it weird? It's one of those words that when you look at it closely doesn't seem to make sense it's an architect there you go you've changed the way you've said it bring on the architect architect what architect ah bring on the architect fuck why did i add a two (laughs) time at the end there oh bye-bye crowd network a place where you belong Podcast Network.